what it means to worship God. It's a great thing uh, that we can still do that, meet together at this time. So uh, we're going to continue through the book of Genesis uh, in Genesis chapter 38. So you can find that in your Bibles if you want to before we dive in. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time, this day, that we can gather as your people, that we can gather together to praise your holy name through prayer, through song, and most importantly, through your word, where we read how you have revealed yourself, how you've moved through history, how you have brought your plan to fruition, and how that relates to us, and how that points to how you save us. And so, Lord, I pray for this time as we read Genesis chapter 38 that might be hard at the same time, we can see you through it and your plan through it. Lord, we love you. We seek you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have this memory. I don't know why this memory has always stuck from, with me, but I have this memory of being a little kid and watching a cartoon. And I don't know that much about that cartoon. I don't even remember that much about the cartoon, what cartoon it was or not. But I remember it involved the good guys and the bad guys. And I remember the good guys had gone somewhere, and it flashed back to the bad guy, one of those guys with the big mustache, as he's twirling his mustache, and he had some probably overly large and dramatic dynamite, and he was about to explode something. And when it flashed back to this character, the cartoon, the narrator said, meanwhile, and it shows what he was up to that was setting up the story, setting up the, uh, the situational irony, if you will, of what the main characters would find when they returned to find whatever this bad guy blew up. But I remember the story, and I think I remember it so much because I think I turned to my parents or my mom and said, what does meanwhile mean? And they explained it to me, or she explained it to me, that meanwhile was at the same time. This is happening maybe at a different location, but taking place at the same time as the other part of the story you're watching. And when I read Genesis chapter 38, I can't help but think that it should start off with meanwhile. Because we just read in chapter 36 and, well, 37 about Joseph and, and his story and how it was getting started, about how he was receiving dreams from God and he was conveying that to his parents and is really going to chart the course for the rest of Genesis. And he was sold into slavery. And we read all that last week. And all of a sudden, chapter 38 starts with something completely different. It starts with a, meanwhile, that was going on, this takes place. And then in chapter 39, it continues with Joseph's story. And so this, this break here of chapter 38 can kind of throw us off. It seems almost inserted uh, in a weird place, but it has great significance. And it's this meanwhile, something else is happening that sets up not just the rest of the story, but actually sets up the rest of the Bible and the rest of God's redemption plan for how he's going to bring people back to him. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 38, and we're going to read this story and talk about as we go along. And it's a story that, if you haven't read before, might strike you as a little odd to be included in Genesis. So Genesis chapter 38 starts in verse 1. It says, It happened at that time, we could take that as a meanwhile, it happened at the time, that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adumalite, uh, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. 
She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. <coughs> Great boy's name. Judah was in uh, uh, Chizib, sorry, man, when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife, Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he'd waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, <clears throat> and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house." So right off, we get the story. Judah goes down to a certain place, and he has his friend Hira, and he finds this daughter of a Canaanite and marries her. He has kids, and he finds another Canaanite for his firstborn son, Ur. But he's wicked, and so God kills him. It's amazing just in that, how wicked he must have been because God has so long-suffering with all of us, but yet he kills him. And so Judah says to Onan, go do your duty as a brother-in-law, which might strike us odd, but at this time, the marriage custom, the lineage was so important from the firstborn especially that that line had to be continued or the family basically would stop. That line would die out. And so the, a brother-in-law would go in and conceive a child, but it would not be his. It would be raised up as his brother's. It would be as if his brother had a child, and that would continue the line. And so Onan does not want to do that. And so he doesn't. And so he's put to death. A great story, but this idea uh, that not, he's not fulfilling his duty. He was being selfish in, what, in whatever capacity he was not fulfilling those things. But it continues. The story continues. It says, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shula's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, and he and his friend Hira, the Abdullahite, might. And when Tamar, and, and Tamar was told, his, Your father all is going to Timnah to share his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and cut herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of uh, Enamim which is on the road to Timnah, she saw that Shelah was grown up, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, she, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she, she conceived by him. When she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on her garments of her widow, widowhood. And so we see Tamar makes a plan. She schemes. She has this promise from Judah that the thirdborn would be given to her so that the line can continue, that she would actually be taken care of and part of the family, but he is kind of not fulfilling that because she saw that Sheila was of age, but she was not married to him or, or given him to continue the line of Ur. 
And so she conceives this plan. She dresses like what's called a cult prostitute, which is these prostitutes of the times that would stand outside the city gates and were involved in these pagan rites of fertility that people would go into for blessings of the crop. And so she dresses like that. And so Judah comes, sees her, and says, hey, let me come in to you. And she's like, well, you've got to pay me. What's, what, what are you going to give me? And he's like, a young goat. And she's like, well, you don't have a young goat. How, you, how do I know I'm going to receive this young goat? And he says, well, what, you know, reassurance. And she says, well, give me your signet, which is probably a cylinder that kind of marked stuff as his, the cord that it carried, and your staff. All of these things are markers for who Judah is. It's like she's saying, hey, give me your wallet, your driver's license, and your social security card. That's, that's, give me those things. Everything that marks you as you, give them to me as assurance that you're going to pay me. And so she takes those, she conceives, and she leaves. And the story continues. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adumanite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute that was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, for or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and we, you did not find her. Jesus like, let's just cut our losses. Let's let not this get out. We don't really want the people to know that my stuff's floating around there and why it's floating around there. And it continues, and about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been, been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she had been brought out, she sent Word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time for, of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the wind wife took and tied a scarlet thread to his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you are made for yourself. Therefore, his name is Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name is called Zerah. When we read Genesis chapter 38, and this admittedly kind of odd story, at least to our ears, we can end, what is this doing right here, breaking up the story of Joseph. What is this doing even in the book of Genesis in the first place? It's funny, when we were talking about doing the book of Genesis, and I was talking to staff, and I was talking to elders about walking through the book of story uh, of Genesis, um, it would probably happen, happen more often than not. People would stop and go, wow, that would be great. You know, there's some crazy stories in the book of Genesis, right? And that's true, as we've seen. There's some crazy stories, stories that kind of push us and go, why is this included in this? Why, why is this so important that the Hebrew people kept us as their word of faith? Why is it so important that we as Christians look back on it and know that is this valuable for our faith and, and profitable for us to learn and grow in? Well, when we look at Genesis 38, I'm convinced it gives us one big fact. It gives us a lot of things we can learn from it. It gives us one big fact, and that's this. God uses imperfect people to preserve his perfect plan. For that's what we see again and again through Genesis, that our God is perfect. 
that he has a perfect plan, that that plan is being carried out. But so often, that plan includes and uses imperfect people. People who mess up, people who are scared, people who don't know what's going on, people who seem to be going their own way. God weaves all those imperfect people into his perfect plan, and it's carried out as he wants it to be carried out. That God uses these weak people to show how strong he is. That God uses these timid people to just show his power. That God uses the, these immoral people to show his mercy and his perfection. That again and again we see this truth. God uses imperfect people to preserve his perfect plan. And so when we read Genesis chapter 38, we have to say, what is the big deal with Judah in the first place? We're just talking about Joseph, and it seems like the story had focused on Joseph, the, the son of, of, of Jacob, and that this is the guy who has all the preference. God was using him, but now all of a sudden it moves to Judah, and we're like, this is, yeah, he's another son of Jacob, but what's so important about Judah? Well, we who know what happens later in the Bible, and we who have the whole Bible to rely on, know the importance of who Judah is. For we know that Judah probably he gains the, the birthright for lack for because of his, his three elder brothers had kind of gone astray. They they had they had um, given up that birthright. Because if you know who his three other brother older brothers were, it was Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Reuben had kind of given up any right he had to the birthright when he go, went and sinned with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi had given up the, any right they had to claim to the birthright when they had gone and slaughtered the, the Shechemites in that city of, she, of Shechem. And so now here's Judah, the fourth, fourth, fourth born, but probably now sitting in a place to he would inherit from his father. He would have the birthright. And so that's why he's important. But also who, we who know where this goes and know what the New Testament tells us and what the Old Testament tells us, know that it's from Judah, his tribe, that the, the lineage of kings is descended. That David, the, the great monarch that sets up the, the, the monarchy for Israel, is descended from Judah. And that our Savior, Jesus Christ, himself traces his lineage back to David's reign and back to Judah's tribe. So why is he important? Well, this is part of God's plan. This is God's plan, not only for the monarchy for Israel, but this is God's plan for who Jesus is going to be, who he's descended from. And so this is why it's included here, that we know who, how God's plan has been working through the ages when we start seeing Judah's line and the preservation of it. And so God preserves Judah's line and we look at that and says, how does he do that? And he does it by bringing out his plan through the use of people, sinful people. That God brings out his plan through this imperfect people. Because when we look at this story and the preservation of Judah's line, there's almost kind of layers we can see it as. Layers that we can start peeling back and understand it. Different layers in which we can understand how God's moving. On the surface, this looks like Tamar single-handedly preserves Judah's line. That's true. But if we dig a little deeper, we start seeing how that God providentially provided for the preservation of Judah's line. 
that God's working in Tamar's action. And then if we pull back a little bit more and dig a little deeper, we see how God's sovereign plan takes people, shapes people to fulfill his ends. And that all these people are not, were, were taken by God and used by God to fulfill his ends in the ways he wants. And we see imperfect people being used by God because God uses imperfect people to preserve his perfect plan. So let's, t- let's look at the story. The imperfect people that abound in this. Well, first of all, you got Judah. And you see how immediately he does not start off good. Why? Because Judah decides, hey, I'm going to go and marry a Canaanite. And as, as the son of Jacob and as, as a descendant of Isaac and Abraham, he knows that all of these people said, hey, go find yourself a wife except for from the Canaanites. You can pick almost any woman, though we like to keep it in a family. That's another topic. You can pick anyone except for these Canaanites. And what does Judah do? He's hanging out with his friend, Hirah, and says, Hira, and says, hey, the daughter of Shula looks pretty nice. So he takes her as a wife. She's not even mentioned. She's this daughter of Shula. And so he sins and going against what he knows to be true, how his family is supposed to operate, and he, he attains a wife uh, from the Canaanites. And then, as we see later, he even sins and he breaks his promises to Tamar himself. But then we see how the plan is furthered, and even Judah's sons and their imperfections and their wickedness, that Ur is so wicked that the, God puts him to death, and that Onan who is supposed to fulfill the duty as a brother-in-law, he decides for whatever reason, reason he's not going to do it. Out of selfish reasons, it says that he knew that if he had a daughter with Tamar, it would not be his own. A lot of commentators think that, that Onan really thought the birthright from Judah should come to me, that I should now be the firstborn son, that I should get this, that if I have a son by Tamar, he would be considered the heir of Judah. He would be considered descended from error, and so he didn't want to do that. So, so from selfish reasons, he does not get a child with Tamar. And then we see, again, this, 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 this sin, this breeding sin. And so in the midst of this, this sin, we see Tamar's scheme to obtain an heir for Ur, to obtain the heir for actually Judah. And this scheme is not a great scheme. We probably would not esteem this a great action for what she does. But it's, a, it's a interesting, again and again, every time Tamar is mentioned, she's mentioned as righteous. That she's justified in obtaining this heir for her, and heir for Judah. She recognized that, she, that God uses her scheme to continue the line of Judah. And so in all of this, this, this twisted nature of humanity, we see God at work, even in this ugliness, even in this weirdness here, that God uses imperfect people to preserve his perfect plan. And that's a great reassurance for us, isn't it? For when we realize that, when we look at this story and we see these people that we probably can say, man, I'm not, at least I'm not doing that. When we see these people, 
It should reassure us because we know that God is using us in all of our imperfections. That God is using us in all of our ways we mess up. That God is using us in all the twistedness of our own lives and the confusing nature in which we walk. That he's using all of this for his plan. His perfect plan. Now, this does not mean that we have a license to sin. It's not like we can look at this and say, man, God's going to use me no matter what so I can live my life how I want to. By no means are we supposed to operate that way. But for God calls us to hate sin. For God calls us to put sin to death. That we're supposed to slay sin in our life every chance we get. That we're supposed to walk in his ways. But it does give us assurance because we can't do that perfectly. We can't follow perfectly. We can't be good enough. We can't be nice enough. We can't, you know, earn our way into his good graces. We just cannot do that. We will fail. We fall short. And so we remember that even though we fall short, we're just like everyone in the Bible that God uses who's imperfect, who's a sinner, who's not who there should be. And we're reassured and we're comforted that God can use us. That this gives us great comfort because we know that God's plans prevail. I don't know about you, but when I go to sleep at night, I am so thankful that God is bigger than me and his plans will prevail no matter how much I messed up that day. No matter how much I failed and fell short of what his standard, I can rejoice because his plans prevail. He is true to what he is bringing about, and I can rest in that, and that's a great comfort. It takes a burden off my shoulders knowing that I cannot, I can't be good enough, and if I try to think I can be, it just wears me down. But it's also a great assurance because it gives us this assurance that we can't put ourselves outside of God's plan. We can't sin our way out of God's hand. Because he will always bring us back. He forgives us. It doesn't mean that we're, we don't face the consequences. When we sin, we mess up. We face the consequences, and we have to deal with those. But what it means is that God's plan prevails, and that we can trust in that, and that no matter what happens, we're still within God's plan. We're still within what God wants us to do and how he's moving us where he wants us to go. This is a great assurance because there's so many people who have gotten this belief that God has this one particular plan that they're supposed to find for their life. And if they mess up, if they trip, and they get off of that, there somehow will be on plan B for their life or plan C. And they just won't experience the blessings that God originally intended for them. I've heard people express this. I've, I've been talking to a lady who, in tears, expressed this, how she saw her life, that she was on plan B or C of what God had for her. And just how troubling that is and how, how damaging that is to think that somehow it's in our power to mess up our lives to that extreme. And this should give us the reassurance that, yeah, we might have to face consequences for our actions, yes, but we can never somehow mess up what God has for us. That we're not powerful enough to break God's grip on our life. That our sins are not heinous enough to somehow make him put us on a secondary route for our life rather than what he wants for us in the first place. Let us reassure us that we are, are, are 
loved by a holy God, a powerful God, who is going to bring us where he wants us, no matter what. Because God uses imperfect people to preserve his perfect plan. And that reassures us. But another big point when we read this chapter is that it forces us to see why this is included, and it raises our eyes to the future. It raises our eyes to Jesus Christ. That is, he points directly to who Jesus is because Jesus is descended from Judah. And so when we read this, it's, it's interesting because it should make us think, oh, well, this is part of Jesus' story. That Jesus can look back on and say, this is my personal history. And when we read the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the um, New Testament, we open it up, what does it start with? It starts with Jesus' genealogy. And in Jesus' genealogy, there's actually five women mentioned. And the first is Tamar. Then it's Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. And then Mary herself in the genealogy of Jesus. And so for one, in one way, we can say, well, why is this mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus? Well, it provides reassurances to Mary. That when she's looking at her life and she's, she has this visitation by an angel and she is betrothed to uh, her Joseph, and, but yet she has not had sexual relationship with him, and now she's pregnant, and just imagining the whispers and the scandal that might follow her in her village and wherever she goes about this, that this provided reassurance to her, says, hey, God has worked in scandal, or perceived scandal in her case, for, since the very beginning, that all these women came from questionable marriage backgrounds. And when we see Tamar and how she conceived um, her children, it was questionable. How we see Rahab, who, who came in and, and, and uh, was married into the line, and, and Ruth, again, the same kind of kinsman-redeemer thing that we see with Tamar. How we see Bathsheba and how she was included in the line from David. And Mary herself, is all these things would probably reassure her that God is in the midst of it. That's how God has always walked, worked. I love this quote by Victor Hamilton, who's a Bible commentator. He says, Each of these four women, talking about the people in uh, Jesus' genealogy, had a highly irregular and potentially scandalous marital union. Nevertheless, these unions were, by God's providence, the links in the chains to, chain to the Messiah. Accordingly, each of them prepares a way for Mary, whose marital situation is also particular, given the fact that she is pregnant but has not yet had sexual relations with her betrothed husband Joseph. Thus, the inclusion of the likes of Tamar in this family tree, on one hand, foreshadows the circumstances of the birth of Christ, and on the other hand, blunts any attack on Mary. God had worked his will in the midst of whispers of scandal. But I love this so much because it's a great reminder to us when we think about how God works, and a great comfort to us, that if you have any scandal in your background, if you have any sin that you're scared of people finding out in your background, God still uses you. We can get in, this, in this, this mindset that somehow, man, I've messed up so much. Man, I really went away. Man, I really don't want people to know this happened. And because then we start thinking that that's so true, that God's no longer going to use me for his purpose. That God, somehow, God can't use me anymore to build his kingdom. That God can't use me to spread the gospel. That God can't use me to minister to people because of this scandal in my background. Well, that is 
so anti-Bible, I don't know what is. For we read again and again, God takes those people who have nothing going for them, people with a past, and uses him for his mission and for the building of his kingdom. Again and again, God takes those people who have repented of that scandal, but maybe are still experiencing the consequences of it, and he uses them to further his plan. It is a great comfort for us as we think about that, that no matter what is in your past, if you have repented of it and confessed it, that God is going to be using you in great ways because that is how God has always operated. It's a great comfort for us. But even a bigger thing when we look at Jesus' genealogy and Tamar being included, we see these women, they're included, and they were all Gentiles. They were not part of God's people. Now, Tamar was a, was a Canaanite, as was Rahab. Ruth was from Moab. Bathsheba was a Hittite. And all of these people, they were Gentiles. Yet God puts them in Jesus' genealogy to declare that his plan had always included Gentiles. And we should rejoice at that because, if I'm not mistaken, we are all in this room Gentiles. We're not of Jewish descent. And so sometimes we get caught up and we can read the the beginning of Genesis and we're like, man, this is God's chosen people and I missed the boat. I was not born from the lineage of Abraham. But God's plan had always been to include people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation into his people. That's why when he blessed Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you a blessing to be a blessing for every family of this earth. And that this is God's plan from the very beginning to spread across the globe, to use his people to spread his word and bring everyone, every tribe, every tongue, every nation into his kingdom. It's why when Jesus was presented at the temple and when he was eight days old, there's this old man, Simeon, at the temple. And when he sees Jesus, what does he say? He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. That from the very beginning, God's plan included the incorporation of those people not of Jewish descent. That we become spiritual heirs of Abraham by our faith, our confession of who Jesus Christ is. And so when we look at this and we see how God uses Gentiles to preserve his plan, it relates to us, for this is a promise to us that God's plan always included you. That before the foundations of the world, God knew you and set his love upon you. That before you were born, God starts knitting you in his, your mother's womb. That he has a plan for you and it has always included you. It's a great comfort for us. Just let that sink in what that means for our life. That God's plan always included you. Jesus Christ was not God's plan B, and neither are you. That he set his love upon you. He has a plan for you. He's working all things out for your good so that you can be conformed to the image of his son. He's bringing you through 
hell and all the things going on in this earth so that you can be with him for eternity. God's plan always included you, even if you're imperfect, which we all are, because God uses imperfect people to preserve his perfect So when we read this chapter, we can dive deep and we can have great discussions on just what kind of sin Onan's sin was. We can have dialogues about what is going on with all of this stuff, but the big things is this should reassure us on how God works even now. It gives us a picture of who God is that we should marvel at, we should stand amazed at. It drives us to worship a God who can bring perfection out of our messy lives. And we rest in that. And then it also encourages us to pursue God's good. That we know what is good because God has told us what is good and we should pursue it. That we do whatever it takes to serve God. That we do whatever it takes to follow what we know to be his will and his plan for our lives. That we go to extremes to worship him and follow him. Knowing that he's using us in all of our failings as we do. Join me in prayer. There and Father, thank you so much for who you are and how you love us. Lord, we marvel at your word. That you can 